If the goal is to sort of lift all boats to do better on cyber, I don't know that SEC filings are necessarily the way to do it. It is the week of May 11th, and welcome to Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow and former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with Ron Gula, NSI Advisory Board Member and President of Gula Tech Adventures. Ron began his career as a pen tester for the NSA. He later went on to be the CTO of Network Security Wizards and the CEO and co-founder of Tenable Network Security, where he helped them scale to more than 20,000 customers worldwide, raise $300 million in venture capital, and achieve revenues in excess of $100 million annually. Now he is focused on investing and advisement of two dozen cybersecurity companies. Ron, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks. I'm glad to be here. We're also joined this week by Megan Brown, NSI Senior Fellow and Partner in Wiley Ryan's Telecom Media and Technology and Privacy and Cybersecurity Practices. Prior to her work at Wiley Ryan, Megan served in the Department of Justice as counsel to two U.S. Attorneys General. She currently serves on the board of the Women's High Tech Coalition and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Cybersecurity Leadership Council, and she co-chairs the Federal Communications Bar Association's Privacy and Data Security Committee. Megan, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Two weeks ago, we had an interview with Dr. Samantha Ravitch, who was one of the commissioners on the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. In that interview, we focused on how the report would impact Congress and the international community, as well as briefly discussing the recommendations on continuity of economic planning. This week, we want to focus on how the report's recommendations will impact the private sector. First, let's talk about certifications. The report recommends the establishment of a national cybersecurity certification and labeling authority. The procedure for creation of this entity is unique. Commerce, Homeland Security, and the Defense Department would hold a competitive bid for a nonprofit, non-governmental organization to be designated and then funded as this authority. Ron, what do you think of the creation of this body, and would such an organization be able to remain truly independent? So it's, it's not the first time the government has more or less outsourced certification. For example, if you're familiar with the continuous diagnostics and monitoring, there's this protocol called SCAP which requires vendors like Tenable and Qualys to be certified. We never got certified by a government agency. We got certified by, by SAIC. And the government has been doing a lot with enabling nonprofits to do sort of its industry outreach. Cyber Command established uh, Dreamport up in uh, up in Columbia, Maryland, you know, to engage uh, rapid prototypes for for Cyber Command. Now, doing this at the national level is going to be kind of interesting because this we're really talking about doing this, you know, for everybody, uh, commerce, DHS folks, uh, the military folks. So, what is this going to look like? How big is this going to be? It's clearly needed. Uh, you know, I could imagine organizations, you know, historically like Mitre you know, bidding on something like this, but also maybe some of the telco type of nonprofits that are that are out there. Do you think this organization, once it's stood up, is going to be able to keep up with advancements in technology any faster than a government agency? So I think the right way to do this would be to pull in members of the the, the situationals. I would, I would expect the telcos, the operating system vendors like Microsoft and, and uh, you know, Google and Cisco to want to participate in this so that you know it can be done with the input of all the different different parties. Uh, my concern is that once you freeze these definitions, once you have these definitions, you know you may in fact uh, freeze development of new types of technologies. 
If you look at things like historically, you know, the top 20 things that we did for the SANS, which is now the CIS, I mean, it started out with Windows and now we're just getting to cloud and we've been on the cloud for like 10, 15 years. So it's hard to build consensus when you have technology moving, but there's so much stuff we're using on a daily basis that we need to do. We need this kind of agency. I mean, I think one of the flaws with this um, overall approach is it's much more complicated, it seems to me, than some of what the existing certifications already try and do. And I think the report, by referencing, for example, things like nutrition labeling, that belies an oversimplification of this set of challenges. So I think, you know, there is a need to improve device cybersecurity, for example, but I count myself among the skeptics that this would be administratively doable and that you wouldn't end up with sort of a race to the bottom or a compliance that's driven towards getting the certification, which may be out of date or bare minimum and not encouraging sort of forward-looking innovation in cybersecurity. I'm just quite skeptical given the diversity of devices, use cases, network deployments, that this is all that workable without becoming a really large bureaucracy, to be honest. Yeah. And to her point, you know, technology is so complex, it will become bureaucratic. I'm hoping there will be higher level certifications, like imagining with that nutrition label, we do not buy devices that say made in China, but perhaps data hosted in China. I would love to see a certification that was very clear to the general population what they were getting into and trying not to you know, mandate 100% compliance and zero vulnerabilities. It's just not going to happen. And I think on that, I mean, I think one of the challenges I see with any kind of snapshot approach, like when a box of cereal leaves the manufacturing company, it's at least knowable what the calorie content is, and that's not going to change over time. What I'm concerned about with something like a data stored in China kind of disclosure is companies move data around. You make all kinds of decisions over time. And so any of these certifications or labeling could become rapidly out of date and could stifle prudent and reasonable decisions. In addition to, I'm, I'm just, I tend to be skeptical about the ability to communicate to consumers a lot of this information in a meaningful way that should be, you know, relevant at the time of purchase. So that's sort of my thought on that complexity issue is this is not a product characteristic that is static once it leaves the manufacturing facility, right? As you know, security changes over time, you find vulnerabilities. So it's just, it seems to me a very tough nut to crack, but interesting that the commission was so interested in this issue because it's certainly been talked about for a while. So another issue raised in the report is that uh, cloud security certification may eliminate less expensive providers. And it recommends a study on ways to incentivize these smaller providers to stay in business. What type of incentivization would be necessary to avoid cons too much consolidation in these markets? Well, we've seen that anytime you have a dominant cloud provider, it tends to become like the the 800 pound gorilla, the 90 you know 90 percent of the market. Yet there's this long tail of of competition. And Salesforce has many many competitors, um, but you know I think HubSpot is like the next biggest one, and it's it's a fraction of the of the market share. So you know incentivizing these other cloud providers to remain in business is not a bad thing. But most people are going to be using the number one or number two SaaS solutions that are out there. You know, I think there's a lot of tools that the government thinks it has to create incentives for this. I would expect one would be some procurement set-asides when it comes to the government. Um, I think there is with FedRAMP and others, there is, just like Ron said, the desire to use 
the big companies that you feel like are reliable and there's a sort of a standard of care there. You, no one's going to look at you funny if you go with the number one or number two. But I think the government will try to set up carve outs and we'll see if that's sustainable. Because if a small company just can't meet the expectations for what the government or a sophisticated enterprise needs, then they're not going to be able to hang in the competitive marketplace. So I think that's going to be really a procurement policy kind of thing where the government tries to play around with set-asides. So let's talk about liability issues. Uh, this seems particularly of the moment right now. The report is somewhat of a double-edged sword on liability. It includes provisions in Recommendation 3.3.2 to insulate entities acting under direction from federal officials to be insulated from liability. It also later suggests in Recommendation 5.1 that systemically important critical infrastructure would be insulated from liability if under attack from a nation-state, terrorist organization, or transnational criminal group, as long as they showed good faith compliance with all their security requirements. However, the report also recommends in 4.2, making the final goods assemblers of software, hardware, and firmware liable for damage if they ship a product with known exploits. Do we think that this is providing a good balance on liability issues? I think the 3.3.2 is interesting because that gets at the question of what do you do as a private company when the government comes and tells you to do something, right? In, for instance, a botnet takedown, you're going to be looking at the federal legislative protections that are out there, whether that's good faith reliance on a warrant, for example, or operations under the Cybersecurity and Information Sharing Act of 2015. I think lots of folks think those didn't go far enough. So helping companies feel okay complying with government requests sounds like a great idea. Depends on what those government requests are. And I think that's going to be a very difficult thing to sort of navigate. 5.1, which is about this rethinking critical infrastructure operators and saying that's sort of a carrot and stick approach. They're saying if we think you're systemically important. We're going to put some obligations on you. And if you comply with those obligations, we're going to protect you from liability if those commitments don't work. That seems to me a very sensible thing to do. Carrot and stick. Devil's, of course, in the details with what the obligations are on the stick side of things. And then finally, from my perspective, the 4.2 final goods assembler liability, that's sort of where the, the project went a little bit off the rails here, which is you know, tort liability and product liability has traditionally been determined at the state level. I think it is really challenging in the context of um, security of products, for example. There's been litigation over IoT vulnerabilities. And I think the key issue there is whether you can bring a lawsuit where there hasn't been actual harm, right? Where it's just a vulnerability was identified and now a class action is going to be brought against a product. That doesn't seem to me to be the right way to go. So I'm not comfortable with this report deciding for the country that Congress should step in and tag final goods assemblers. I think that's going to distort contractual allocations of responsibility, et cetera. But overall, I think you could see the commission grappling with these issues and knowing that there are trade-offs in who ends up holding the bag. Yeah. So on, you know, 5.1, you know, the idea of making somebody, you know, not liable as long as they're compliant with the standard. Yeah, that makes sense. A lot of states have tried that. Ohio basically said we can forgive negligence if you're compliant with the NIST cybersecurity framework. That's easier said than done, though. That, that's a very flexible interpretation. And a lot of these recommendations are really risk management decisions. Well, if I'm running a company, I might want to take the risk because I might want to grow faster or support my customers better. 
I don't know how that lines up with, uh, with, with government policy. You know, being a critical infrastructure is a little bit different. I think DHS is going to have very clear things what they want of the uh, power companies, for example. On 4.2, what, um, what, what I think is interesting is if you look at the vendors who are doing good, like trying to be transparent with their vulnerabilities, look at Microsoft and the history they've had the last 15, 20 years. They've really come a long way being very transparent about the updates and whatnot, and even Zoom right now you know, basically being very transparent from the public uh, out there. But people who are transparent are, you know, these bigger vendors who make things that don't get touched that often, right? Medical device manufacturers, IoT, even election machines, even power generation machines. So I like this law to kind of put some pressure on those organizations. But as Megan says, the devil's in the details. The, the cyber industry has been talking about this for the past 20 years. I didn't really see a way going forward with some of the issues that Megan raised about how do we get around some of these issues? So there are a variety of recommendations uh, meant to foster cyber insurance. Even if liability isn't perfectly balanced, wouldn't sophisticated insurance markets be able to effectively hedge against these issues? So the insurance markets are looking at this very closely. They're businesses. They, if they could solve this with certain types of, uh, of insurance products, they would. The problem is, is, is how do you license theft of intellectual property where the theft of the intellectual property might compete you internationally and just drive your stock down or up a, a little bit? It's very, very difficult to show the impact of cyber risk with here. So, you know, it's something that I think is going to be an ongoing issue. And it also doesn't, you know, address transitive risk. If I'm a big company and I'm using the cloud, I use Amazon, I use Salesforce, I use Zoom, and then those things have issues. You know, am I insured against that? And these are critical things, a part of every business today. So it's it's a very complex business right now. I agree. I mean, we we look a lot at the insurance side of this, um, and I think they are evolving and have been evolving products and theories. And I I, I think some of the recommendations in the report that called for uh, more government in superintendents over the cyber insurance market. I think they didn't strike me as well-founded because they seem to presuppose that the insurance market needs a lot of help in gathering data. And I think of all the sectors, the insurance sector probably has the most data to assess and, and diagnose risk. Um, but I do think we're going to see this play out in litigation over coverage and creative solutions that different players are going to come in and try and meet that need. The big challenge here is just there's so many different kinds of risk that it's hard actuarially to speak in sort of uh, broad strokes about it, right? The theft of IP is one thing. Products failing is another. Your network's going down and interrupting service is yet another. So I think we still have a lot to see. So Megan's comment about data kind of reminded a, a vision for the cyber insurance industry I kind of wish happened. If you remember the Geico commercials where you put a little sensor in your car so it can see if you're a good driver or not, you get a discount. I've always envisioned the cyber insurance industry becoming managed security providers because they have almost that lawyer confidentiality and knowing your ins and outs. And, you know, if they can actually see not, not just your vulnerabilities, but your industry's vulnerabilities, not only could they tell you where you're doing good or bad with your peers, but they can do it with actual view of, uh, of risk. Right now, the standard MSSP doesn't tend to focus on just hospitals or just banks or just uh, uh, government agencies. So I really think the cyber insurance industry could be doing more, be proactive and offering those kind of monitoring solutions. All right. That sounds like a good segue to vulnerability disclosure. So 
as uh, part of the Solarium Commission's insurance recommendations, one of them is to amend Sarbanes-Oxley to include cybersecurity reporting requirements. To an outsider like me, this seems like a pretty straightforward idea as corporations already have to report on a variety of other risk factors to their businesses. Is there a reason cyber risk should be viewed differently than other risks? Uh, so the short answer is yes. But what you don't want to do is you don't want to divulge too much of your cyber technology stack that people can read into it. So, so for example, let's say I was one of the last organizations who stayed on-prem. I felt the cloud was too risky versus everybody else in my, my peer group has, is all using Amazon and Salesforce and, 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 and whatnot. I think it's going to be very difficult for the general population to differentiate that in a, in an SEC type of uh, type of disclosure. So I'm concerned that you know if we overshare, it's going to be confusing. But we should be sharing some things. My perspective on this recommendation is a little bit more skeptical for a couple of reasons. One is the animating force behind Sarbanes Oxley was you know deliberate financial fraud, and that's I don't think the problem we're trying to solve for in cyber. If the goal is to sort of lift all boats to do better on cyber, I don't know that SEC filings are necessarily the way to do it. I see a lot of interesting stuff being done in M&A and transactional work with diligence so that companies are saying, oh, I need to know what my target acquisition uh, is doing on cyber. But I don't know that putting a bunch of stuff in 10Ks is the way to lift all boats in terms of um, focusing the market, so to speak, on cyber. I also just see a huge downside when you when you start adding to these mandatory disclosure obligations. You have the issue that Ron very rightly identified about over-disclosure, so to speak. You also have a focusing of, you know, um, to be very blunt, plaintiff's lawyers and class action lawsuits in shareholder derivative settings that I just don't think is going to be helpful to improving security. I think it's going to be potentially you know, a big payday for certain people and will raise the stakes of various disclosures. Uh, but I don't know that that's the way to raise cybersecurity across the private sector. And when you look at how it would be done, um, if it's putting it on par with the financial controls and the internal and external auditing, I think you're just creating an additional layer of third party consultants and oversight to come into companies and audit them that I'm not so sure will actually lead to better cybersecurity for those companies. And it's interesting, you know, if you have two companies, let's just pick on two public companies like a Walmart and a, uh, a Home Depot, where they have, um, you know, a vested interest not to disclose their cyber comings and goings because of Amazon, it might be really, really an interesting thing to require them to disclose that sorts of stuff. Whereas Amazon, they have clearly have a much incentive to disclose everything because they're all you know on the internet with APIs and everybody kind of trusts them. So it could hurt some companies, even if they are trying to be transparent. Is it possible that the harm extends into market valuations? I mean, there, there would probably a huge number of disclosures that would be uh, reported given the state of cybersecurity right now. Could we, could we see a real impact on stock price? It's possible. I, I've actually been pitched companies. It's it's funny. So being an investor from small to large companies, I got pitched a company a couple of times where they would consume publicly available and publicly procurable threat feeds, you know, malware who got infected and whatnot. And what they were using it for was to identify lapses in cybersecurity for similar public companies so they could hedge one versus the other. If you knew that two equal companies, that one might have a cyber incident more likely than the other, that might be enough to short one and go with another. I thought that was interesting, but I'm not, I don't invest in those kind of companies. 
Well, and one thing about that sort of comparative external evaluation is it is really hard as an external company who's trying to kick the tires on, say, network connections and do a snapshot of, of sort of perimeter security because you don't really have a sense of what's going on internally. So these are all, I just think, really difficult questions of measurement and comparisons that are very hard to make. So count me a skeptic of using market disclosures to encourage competition on cyber to drive better cyber. I just don't think that having companies compete through their SEC disclosures on their security posture is going to be helpful to lifting the tide for, you know, all companies. All right, let's uh, let's turn to my favorite issue uh, from the commission report, encryption. And the report basically punted on the question of encryption. Is this because the commission is saying the status quo is okay, or has the issue become too politicized for even an independent commission to handle? I think it's the latter. I mean, my take, they did a they did a little separate, almost one-page, half-page discussion of encryption, which much of which read like a love letter to end-to-end encryption, because from a security perspective, that's a good thing. And then ultimately, there was a nod to difficult law enforcement equities and kind of a punt. You know, keep in mind, these commissioners are mostly politicians themselves. And I think that was a recognition that this is a very, very difficult issue when you've got the United States government coming in and telling you, we will have a serious problem if you were to uh, fully endorse end-to-end encryption without lawful access. So to me, it was a punt based on the difficulty from a political and a policy perspective. Yeah, there's so many ways this can go poorly, right? If if it becomes... Uh, sort of commonplace that, you know, all U.S. communications applications have some sort of government backdoor, we might start using Swiss chat applications. We might start using Chinese chat applications. And I think that that could very easily happen if you look at the popularity of some of these tools. So at the same time, though, I do think, you know, law enforcement does have the right to get to the communications that they need to get to. I don't know that they have the right to sort of have a beachhead there before there before there's a need. And, and that's where we've been ever since the clipper chip, you know, 20 years ago. So um, this is going to be really interesting. And it's playing out right now with the earn it uh, bill that's that's up, up for, uh, for uh, uh, debate right now. Talk more about that. Where do you uh, where do you see that bill going and how's that going to play out? So I, I think the biggest issue that I have with that that bill is it doesn't get into the specifics of how law enforcement is going to maintain access. And I actually deal with a lot of startups who deal with crypto. Uh, a lot of my funds have crypto companies. A lot of stuff I invest in directly has got really good crypto. I mean, basically, if you're a business crypto app, you've got keys to, to, to look at your employees. That's the whole point of having you know business vetted communications. You want to do that. But if you're trying to provide a public communication platform like Signal or uh, Zoom or any of these types of things, if you you know, if you're giving backdoors back to whichever governments that are out there, I mean, you're going to erode trust with your user base. Same thing happened to BlackBerry when they gave the keys to the nation of India. uh, I think that kind of raised a lot of eyebrows. And if that happened today, that would have been like front page news for like a cyber scoop story or a, um, you know, Washington Post cyber 202. I I tend to agree with what Ron said. I think the U.S. government for their, what I presume to be very good intentions, and I worked in the senior levels of the Department of Justice. So my friends over there are earnest and sincere when they say they are struggling with this and they need to get the access that they Uh, they say they need to get. I think the challenge is the government seems to me sometimes to be speaking out of both sides of its mouth. On the one hand, they want end-to-end encryption for their users. They want security overseas when they're traveling and using foreign 
networks that might have suspect parts at the same time domestically. They want companies to make sure they they can have access despite end to end encryption. And I think without a very clear and candid discussion with the private sector about exactly what the government has in mind, you kind of have people in their corners a little bit fearful and a little bit skeptical of each other's motives. And I think that's the unfortunate status quo right now. Ron, yeah, and let me just let me just interject as as on a good day, I'm a foreign policy nerd. It seems to me if we're uh, requiring U.S. government access through encryption technology, that it makes it much harder for us to make the case against Huawei or some of these other Chinese companies that are problematic in the national security sphere. But Ron, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. I was going to say that uh, you know Zoom, with it coming into its uh, dramatic you know rise in popularity right now. And then being very public about the enhancements to its encryption, you know, it's kind of educating all of these constituents who are going to be putting pressure on Congress when they vote on on bills like like Earn It. And one of the casualties of this is, you know, Zoom kind of came out and said, hey, look, our packets are encrypted end to end. Granted, there's a server in the middle that's decrypting the packets and re-encrypting them. And who knows what's going else on that server. But technically, you know, it is end to end encrypted. And I think they just kind of redefined what that really means, right? At a, probably the worst time in history to do it. All right, so let's uh, let's turn to the public sector and elections. Very non-controversial issue. So one of the goals of the commission is to protect our country's election infrastructure. Elections, though, of course, are run at the state and local level. The commission doesn't really address this. Is it plausible to do a federal standard for? election security? I mean, I think as a legal matter, it probably is possible. Whether it's desirable is a whole separate question. I mean, periodically, it's been a while since I've looked at the Help America Vote Act from after the Florida election debacle now 20 years ago. I think it's certainly possible to nudge them along. But I think one of the fundamental things I keep hearing whenever this topic comes up, and it seems like respectfully, it's always thrown in to every cyber thing that happens. There's a lot of stakeholders and a lot of the fundamental problems are they just, the state and local governments just have neither the expertise nor the funds to do what folks are telling them they need to do. So if you don't solve for that problem, I think, you know, the creation of standards is great. And there's a ton of good public private partnership work being done on this, but without money, I just don't think that they can meet whatever the feds are going to say is the ideal. I agree completely. The, uh, you know, after 9-11, we had DHS, DHS named a whole bunch of critical infrastructures and voting was not one of them. So that means it never got funded. It never got talked about. Nobody nobody ever wanted to become a careerist in the voting industry. But clearly, this is like really, really important to our nation. And everybody dropped the ball on this. Uh, every state did. DHS did. I mean, every, every cyber pundit did. You know, when we were talking about all of our Hollywood, you know, uh, uh, 9-11 scenarios, you know, nobody ever really kind of looked at how disinformation and stuff like that uh, did it. So I'm glad there's focus now. I'm glad we're talking about what happens with pen and paper, what happens if you can flip votes. There's some really scary scenarios out there. I think there's a general distrust in uh, in voting in general, depending on who you think the bad person is on the other side of that counting thing. But uh, we have to invest more in this. If it means raising taxes, if it means federal grants, if it means uh, whatever, we really need to do this and do it at the state level. I don't think we need to go federal. So, Ron, let's let's pivot off that a little bit. Uh, the one of the other recommendations in in the report specifically references paper based voting systems uh, in a positive way. Is the commission effectively saying that the best voting system is paper and a pen? Well, clearly, if you're going to have paper votes, you're going to have some computer scanning those paper votes. I surely don't think you're going to have 
you know, election volunteers manually tallying these things. And maybe in some precincts you, you do. One of these issues is that not only is it state by state, it's county by county. Some counties are, you know, very well, uh, have a good tax base. Other counties, you know, not, not so much. But no matter how you do this, whether you do it on paper, whether you do it, uh, you're going to have to do it. Now, you can audit your paper bounce, but that, which is a, a statistical sample. Uh, that can be gamed, but, um, but, you know, there are ways to kind of do the risk limited audits on the paper votes, which is kind of what everybody is recommending right now. So Megan, one of the other recommendations of the Solarium Commission is that, uh, private companies be allowed to provide free cybersecurity tools to campaigns so long as it's done on a nonpartisan basis. What, what do you think of that? Does that raise any uh, red flags for you? No, actually, I think it makes a lot of sense because from my perspective, no good deed goes unpunished. And if you're a tech company who does some pretty cool stuff with cybersecurity, uh, Microsoft did some very cool stuff two years ago. They rolled out publicly a, uh, a program that was helping campaigns basically manage certain cybersecurity threats, and they did it for free. And from my perspective, that's, that's a great thing. That's what we should be hoping our private sector companies do. Um, they do have to work through a thicket of regulatory concerns. Is this an inappropriate gift? Is this some sort of gratuity? Are we violating the campaign finance laws? It block, there's a lot there. So to me, this would be a way to reduce those uh, barriers to entry for folks to come out. Now, does that fix quality control issues? No. Could you have some fly-by-night startup that says, we're going to seed the market with our great tech by going to a bunch of candidates who can't afford stuff. Sure. That's why you have to have education. But I think the idea in this recommendation to clear away the regulatory and legal fears of offering free stuff to campaigns is is a good one. Ron, agree? I, I do agree. And I've actually got some involvement here. I, I'm, I'm on the board of the Defending Digital Campaigns nonprofit, and it's a, it's a political nonprofit. Um, but basically, you know, having companies going directly to the campaigns is tough. Because it's kind of hard to identify who's in a campaign. You might have, you might run for for candidate someday, and I might you might hire a political consultant who's going to keep his or her, you know, political consultant's email says, "Hey, I'm I'm working for this campaign." Very difficult to vet. And at the same time, you know, you really don't want to call up a cyber company and be like, "Oh yeah, here's what we're doing with patching, and we're not using two factor." So you got to kind of have this trust uh, kind of kind of thing. So I've been pretty happy with our role at Defending Digital Campaigns to kind of be that middle ground where both parties can come in and vendors can come in and and provide that. And to date, uh, as we're doing, we've had an engagement with about 100 different political campaigns, federal campaigns. All right. Let's uh, let's talk talk about another public sector issue, education and, uh, and as regards to campaigns and, and other aspects of our cyber life. So disinformation, particularly in political campaigns, has been an issue for a long time. It was particularly acute in 2016. The report tries to deal with this in two ways, the first through education and the second through the regulation of advertising. On the education front, it recommends increasing funding for kindergarten through high school programs, promoting good digital citizenship and public awareness campaigns. Do you have experience with this? What do you think of this kind of initiative? Uh, Ron, do you want to go first? Yeah, so this is really needed. If you don't have kids, you might not know that uh, you know the entire U.S. education system just went through a common core kind of overhaul within the last five years or so. And that was to focus on the fundamentals. But, you know, the fundamentals were math, reading, problem solving, science. It wasn't cybersecurity. It wasn't how does email work. It wasn't what's a good password. It wasn't basically anything a child going through the K through 12 system right now is going to need, no matter what job they have, 
uh, because it's going to be so much about data processing and AI and computer science. So I'm in favor of these types of things. And specific for cybersecurity, you know, DHS has got a good program, the, the NICE uh, program. And then there's other programs out there where, for example, uh, Discovery Education is working on the National Cyber Education Program, which they're just trying to bring cyber curriculums into the K through 12 at age appropriate levels. So I mean, I'm very much in favor of all this. I like the idea of trying to pull together a lot of the different threads and resources that the government has been deploying to do education at all levels about digital citizenship. Because what I see from things like, you know, when I'm helping a company deal with uh, patching, for example, you're always running into that set of users who won't take the patch, right? Who won't do the kinds of things that they need to do. It might not be a lot, but I think we can move the needle on getting the public to be aware that they have a role to play as responsible dig digital citizens on the cyber front. I think the place where, you know, I, I think the report may go a little off the rails is once it starts getting into the sort of let's reform online political advertising. And that to me conflates a few different issues because while disinformation issues are super important, I don't think of them as sort of classic cyber issues. I think they're, that's a, they're related. They may overlap in the Venn diagram, but I like the idea of the government trying to streamline what it already does on stop, think, connect, and some of that stuff. And I thought maybe the 3.5.1 was a little bit of a distraction because, you know, the Federal Election Campaign Act and uh, online political advertising is a morass of complexity and First Amendment issues and all of that stuff. So I'd prefer to sort of keep that over there and focus on the nuts and bolts of getting American citizens to understand digital hygiene and cyber. On the regulation front, the commission recommends extending the FECA to include political advertising on the internet. Is there any downside to having the same regulations that govern other types of political ads also govern online ads? I think most people were surprised that, that this wasn't illegal in, in the first place because we're so used to seeing, you know, advertising on TV about campaigns or political action committees paying for these things to understand that, you know, I could be in Russia, I could be in China, I could pay for a an anti-Donald Trump, a pro-Hillary ad, or, you know, whatever, whatever. I think it was very surprising for people to realize that this was not uh, something that maybe Facebook was just choosing not to do in the first place. I think um, the question of online political advertising disclosures and regulations is extraordinarily complicated. And I see some very challenging issues in terms of classifications of speakers and um, just logistical challenges. So I'm going to put a pin in that and say this is its own podcast potentially, but I see a lot of difficulty here in doing this in a way that that actually works and that is consistent with the First Amendment. Political campaign finance law is already fraught. We have a whole practice group that does it at my law firm, and I, I remain stunned that in order to not violate the law, it requires such an investment to engage in core political activity. But on the foreign influence stuff, I think I'm going to have to put a pin in that because it's very complicated and uh, I don't see an easy path forward. Could there be a more inside baseball issue than regulating online political ads? I don't think so. All right, let's back up and look at the totality of the Solarium Commission report. What's next on this? What do we think of uh, not necessarily every single recommendation, but the ones that are adjudicated and seem to be uh, have possibility going forward? How will this roll? Is it going to get shoved into a must-pass national defense authorization? Uh, will it be something else? What's the best way forward? Megan, I'll, I'll give you first shot at it. 
Sure. So the report has, I think, upwards of 45 legislative recommendations. Only six specifically say that the commission thinks they should go in the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. And I think that's good, but I am skeptical and a little fearful that a lot of these ideas may show up in the NDAA. For those who are not deep in the weeds of defense appropriations, this is a bill that gets bigger every year because it is must pass and ends up being sort of a Christmas tree for other stuff that folks think is good and might relate to national security. So I would prefer that some of these things not go in the NDAA because that um, process does not usually have the level of hearings, public input, and uh, drafting um, consideration that other pieces of legislation do. So that's my sort of big picture is there's a lot they ask Congress to do here. And I think it should not be rushed into an NDAA uh, with limited oversight and input. I mean, the what's next right now is because of COVID, right? So because we have this national epidemic, the work that would have been done, you know, is kind of getting slowed down here. So I agree it will be, you know, we're going to see some things in the NDAA. If people have not had a chance to see any of the commissioners speak, um, they should. They, uh, you know, they all have a little bit different, different angle on it. People like Chris Anglis, you had Samantha on here, uh, the various Congress, uh, the Congress persons, you know, they all have a different angle, but it's a very, very remarkably consistent type of story about how it happened, what was debated and what, what was going on out there. I think we're going to see some of this stuff come in. And I think you're also going to see it like, for example, we might see some of the vulnerability disclosures. Maybe it won't be broad. Maybe it'll just be medical devices. Uh, maybe it'll be just election devices. So I think we're going to see things pared down a little bit if it can't be as encompassing as we want them to be. All right. Before we close, uh, any issues we didn't discuss that you'd like to uh, mention for the record? My only thought was that I would have liked to have seen a bit more in this commission report on the importance of public-private partnerships. I think in cyber, there's a lot that goes on between the government and the private sector more can be done, but it's a it's a good story that we have been and should be telling to our overseas partners that this is really a, a good way to do it. Um, you've seen some muscle memory that was used in the COVID pandemic, right? Some of those DHS relationships were immediately beneficial in getting the right folks on the line to talk about um, keeping essential services going. So I think those public-private partnerships are really important, and I would have liked to have seen more discussion of them in this uh, Solarium Commission report. You know, I think every cyber professional, if they haven't read the report, they should read it. But actually, I've been getting people new to cybersecurity. I've been telling them to read it because it's so comprehensive, everything from nuclear war and constituity of the economy to, you know, how can we reduce uh, online fraud? So they cover a lot. They didn't leave hardly anything out. It does get criticized for having everything in the kitchen sink in there. But cyber touches every aspect of American life. And, and I, I think they try to address as many of those things as possible. Ron, Megan, thanks very much. It's a terrific show. And that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and our producer and director, Grant Haver, for all of his terrific work. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Mm-hmm.